Hello, this is Monica Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'm speaking to Midge Gillis, who is the author of seven non-fiction books, including biographies of pilot Amy Johnson and Edwardian music star Marie Lloyd. Formerly a Royal Literary Fund Fellow at Cambridge University, Mitch is now Academic Director of Creative Writing at the University's Institute of Continuing Education. Her latest book is Piccadilly, The Circus at the Heart of London. It's a fascinating exploration of the social and historical events that have shaped one of London's most historic and busiest sites and the colourful cast of characters it attracts, from members of the capital's elite to those lurking in its shadows. Midge Gillies, welcome to Monocle Reads. Hello, nice to be here. It's really lovely to have you here. And before we get on to this book about really what is the heart of London, I just wanted to have a quick look at some of your other work because it's equally as fascinating. And I'd like to start with Marie Lloyd because that's not someone I know a lot about. No, it's a bit of a shame, actually. She's kind of faded from history, but she was a really interesting performer. So she was quite a petite person and she would perform in musicals at a time when if the crowd didn't like you, they'd throw dead cats at you <laughs> or oyster shells. And when she started out, it was when Jack the Ripper was on the prowl. So she was in the East End of London and playing seven halls a night and rushing around. So a really interesting woman. And clearly enormously famous in her day. Oh, yes. And, and when she died, about 100,000 and people came to her funeral and one woman walked all the way from Newmarket in Suffolk. So she was she was kind of really loved because she was very open about her, her private life. She was married three times. Two of her husbands were violent towards her and this was all very obvious and open. So she didn't pretend... And she wore her heart on her sleeve. She toured America, South Africa, Australia. She was a mega star, huge star. And at that time, to get to Australia, South Africa, and yeah. it would take years. Yes, yes. And also, I think they were a bit baffled about her in America because she was very much a Cockney performer. So they handed out dictionaries to explain <laughs> the words that she used in some of her songs. And then you went on to profile another brilliant woman, uh, and that, of course, is the Queen of the Air, Amy Johnson. Yes, so I love writing about women who do things that terrify me. So the thought of being on a stage terrifies me. The thought of being in a plane terrifies me. And Amy Johnson is just fantastic. So she's always classified as the typist from Hull. But actually, she was much more than that. She was very intelligent and a record-breaking pilot who went missing in 1941, and we still don't know exactly what happened to her. So a a really kind of romantic, thrilling story. And in terms of research for that, if flying (laughs) does terrify you, I mean, did did you spend time in small planes? Yes, I did. My husband, uh, very sweetly, paid for me to go up in a biplane very similar to the type that Amy would have flown. And I remember thinking, I will either want to remortgage the house and get my pilot's licence, or I will never want to go in a plane again. And it was the latter, because you... I mean, it was a really good form of research. You get into the plane, you see how the wings are just bolted on, you can see the light coming through the fuselage. And I actually had a, a woman pilot, which was great, and she kept saying you take the controls. And I kept saying, I really don't want the controls, that's fine. And I remember, it was quite a while ago, and I remember waving off my my daughter, who was tiny at the time, and thinking, I'll never see her again. So it was a really good experience, and that was in very calm weather, and Amy 
flew through the monsoon when she flew to Australia. She really was an extraordinary woman. Yes, I can't really imagine the amount of bravery because you had very rudimentary navigational aids. You didn't have a radio link to the ground. For days, people didn't know where she was and she flew over parts of the world that were shark-infested, that if she landed, then that would have been it, really. So it was incredible. The next book that I want to talk about came out in 2007 and in a way I feel it could be incredibly relevant today. It's called Waiting for Hitler, Voices from Britain on the Brink of Invasion. And I just wonder if what you glean from those letters or from those voices echo what we're feeling now, because, of course, we do feel we may be in a slightly similar situation. Yes, I mean, I think that's really true. And a few times recently I've thought, oh, that was what it must have been like in 1940. That must have been the terror of thinking the world's in such a precarious state. And I think especially when you get to a certain age, you worry about your loved ones more. When you're very young, you think this is not going to happen to me. And it did make me think, yes, in the war, people must have just been terrified the whole time. You know, they spoke about being kind of windy, not being able to sleep, being anxious. And I completely get that for the first time now. So, yes, that's very true. Mm. And then you've written a lot of books about writing. Uh... Yes, well, I teach creative writing and I love that. So I think it's very good for my own writing and I love helping students to find their voice and to really kind of analyse. You can never make someone into a brilliant writer, but you can make anyone a better writer and that's really satisfying. Mm. Let's come to this book now, Piccadilly, the circus at the heart of London. It all really starts with a with a statue, with a sculpture, Eros. Yes, exactly. And I think he's, I mean, he's been moved around Piccadilly Circus quite a lot, but I think that the story behind him is really interesting and the person who created him, Alfred Gilbert, who was very romantic and very impetuous and actually the statue, in a sense, was the undoing of him because he spent a lot of money building it and was always in debt and people didn't really like it to begin with, so they didn't know if it was Cupid or Mercury or Eros. I mean, technically, it's the Shaftesbury Memorial. It is and for Lord Shaftesbury. It yes. was commissioned for that purpose. Yes, and then later, Gilbert said it was Anteros, who is the god of selfless love. But, you know, as a place that was known for assignations and, you know, morally dubious at the time, meetings, then a lot of people thought for a, a social campaigner, Shaftesbury, perhaps she didn't want a scantily clad young man to be there. Um, And, of course, it's become somewhere that people climb, you know, when their football team has won or they sit on the steps and it's a place for for meeting other people as well. And the model for it, Angelo Colorossi, is very interesting too because he was a kind of... He was the model and helper for the sculptor and he never grew beyond five foot. So he's this very kind of beautiful young boy in the statue but became a, a solicitor's clerk and had quite a humdrum life after that. So I think in a way that's kind of metaphor for Piccadilly Circus as well, that you can come and hope to be one thing but actually something quite different occurs. And you point out that, of course, it was a place where different classes could interact and at that time that was quite unusual. Yes, I think its position is um, makes that possible. So if you think of... I think it's it was spoken of as the magnetic pole, the third magnetic pole, but it's got shopping to the west, it's got Soho to the north, it's got Parliament Square, and then it's near Trafalgar Square as well. So it's a place where people could come, like a roulette wheel, really, and experience lots of different things, experience shopping, all night, you know, boots, the chemists. So there was lots going on. The underground 
brought people in and all sorts of encounters were possible there. Well, let's talk about retail because in 1904, Swan and Edgar was opened. Tell us about that shop and what it meant for the the, uh, sort of retail expansion of the area. Well, it was a a wonderful department store and it was very important that people then had suddenly the technology to have huge windows so you could go window shopping and people could come from out of town and buy all sorts of things and you had Selfridges not too far away so it became this place to meet people and spend extra money. If you were a shop girl you had a chance to have a, a bit of independence and those windows were very important because not only were you looking at things inside but you were looking at your reflection preening and perhaps eyeing someone else up. So there's a lot of coded encounters that were going on because of that. Yeah. Now it's long been a place of protest where people gather and of course in 1912 that was the case again. Tell us about the suffragettes. Oh well they had a great time there so they would use the windows to really make their anger felt because they thought a lot of the shopkeepers should be doing more to support their cause and so they went on a kind of rampage and they produced hammers from their Dorothy bags and smashed the windows and it was said that you couldn't for that night walk along the pavement without walking on crushed glass so it must have been quite scary but a really good way of protesting how you felt. Mm. And then of course we come to the First World War and you've got a chapter here called Now You've Got Your Khaki On. (laughs) Tell us more. Oh well that's a reference to the musical performers so um, we talked about Mari Lloyd but Vesta Tilly was well known for impersonating male figures and she was a, a Tommy in some of her acts and she went to great efforts to make sure that that was authentic so she would wear men's underwear. She would carry out a knapsack that was the exact weight that her soldier would have so that she could swing her arms and march to the, the correct beat and she was very well known for drumming up support for people to enlist in the army which may be a dubious claim to fame but she was very successful in that. And then of course there was also a great hotel that was placed there, the Regent's Palace and that opened in 1915 and again became quite an important landmark for soldiers coming back from the war. Yes and it's it's a really beautiful and unusual building and people would if they could go and you know use it just for the the one night if they had a romantic encounter there but also you could go there and be injected in a way that would mean that you wouldn't be sent back to the front. And in fact, there was an undercover policeman who was hiding under one of the, the beds there to try and trick the doctor who was doing that. So there were all sorts of things going on behind closed doors in that What were hotel. they being injected with? Oh, some, a horrible thing that made your knee swell up. So it looked as though you had something quite serious wrong with you. And it was a, a ticket not to go back to the front. How extraordinary. Mm. And you can understand why, though, people might want to do that. Yes. Uh, Then, of course, comes the jazz age, and that's another complete sort of change of identity, if you like, for Piccadilly Circus. Yes. Well, again, I think it's a a case where you could have all all sorts of people meeting there, and the Café de Paris, which is in Coventry Street, which you probably know from the Monopoly game. There's one of those yellow cards. And it was a subterranean nightclub, and it was said that Louise Brooks uh, performed the Charleston for the first time in London there, And it was also well known as a place for black performers, performers from Europe. So it was somewhere that you could go and expect to see really outrageous acts and also to mix with royalty. And Nancy Mitford liked to go there. And she said once that her friend was nearly killed by someone swinging someone round while they were wearing roller skates. So it was a very kind of (laughs) odd place. And of course, it features a little bit later on when we talk about the Second World War. But in the interim, of course, the Underground Railway has come. 
Yes, and that really kind of changed um, how quickly you could get into London and also I think a, an idea of excitement so that, and I still feel that when I go to Piccadilly Circus, you know, coming out from the, the bowels of the earth and the light and the noise and there are wonderful descriptions of people meeting their girlfriends or boyfriends there. So in The Lonely Londoners, I think it's the girlfriend who's waiting for the boyfriend to just come up the escalators and it's so exciting, you know, when you think, oh yes, I've spotted the familiar face. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, just back to the Regent's Palace Hotel and some of the darker things that happened there. Suicide. Mm. This is the Turners. Yes. Well, they were a very tragic couple who actually weren't from London. And I think that people often felt a, a trip to London from somewhere if they lived in the north was a chance to be somewhere else and perhaps pushed you over the edge and allowed you to think that, yes, you could take your own life, which is horribly tragic. But they were a couple, she was quite a bit older than him and they both uh, agreed to take poison, but he survived and then he was accused of murder. So it was just tragic on every possible level. And not really the only case involving that hotel. It was quite notorious. No, and I think it must have been awful for the, the staff working there, you know, because there are cases of people kind of banging on the door, the chambermaid, and then getting help and then finding that, you know, another awful tragedy had occurred. Mm. And I think it's it was a huge hotel. At one point it was the biggest in Europe, and it's the anonymous nature of that. And I think perhaps being allowed to be left by yourself and your own thoughts for long enough to not hold back from going over the brink. Mm. Of course, it was also a magnet for films. When it, a place is so busy, what a wonderful backdrop. The silent film Piccadilly was filmed there. But it got the name The British Hollywood. Tell yeah. us more about oh, that. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. So um, Piccadilly's fantastic. It's got an amazing star called Anna Mae Wong in it, who was this beautiful American-Chinese performer. And, I mean, I don't particularly like silent films and I think often people kind of gurn and pull faces, but she was such a subtle actor and people really took to her glamour and her beauty and would have their hair cut in her style and wear jackets that she used to wear. And then throughout Hitchcock, it's a kind of shorthand for his London. It's a quick way of saying it. One of the Harry Potter films does that as well. And also of comings and goings, you know, that you can encounter different people. So Hitchcock uses it beautifully, I think particularly in The Lodger. It's so menacing. And he includes the uh, Lion's Corner house there and again encounters. There was a horrible encounter there that leads to tragedy. And the tortured woman comes back to Piccadilly Circus and she looks up at the flashing lights and instead of seeing a cocktail being poured, she sees a dagger being stabbed and she hallucinates. So I think it's the, those shades, those light and darkness and how things change the minute the lights come down and it's mm. um, night time. You mentioned the Lion's Corner House yes. there and of course that's so famous throughout literature. You kind of, so I've read so many things where it's sort of a quick romantic tryst over a cup of tea yes. and uh, before whoever it is goes off to war yeah. or, or whatever. Tell us a little bit more about it. The tea shop and the, the corner house were places that you could go and you, you had a um, I remember my mum telling me about this that there was a better class of waitress, the nippy so she was so cool because she nipped around and she had to be good at maths and you could have quite exotic food there like a, a jam roll, you know, that might not have a home <laughs> and um, the nippies wore these wonderful uniforms and they, they wore a little coronet that had to be just above the eyebrow so it was very material 
meticulous and you felt like you were being served by, you know, someone quite posh. There's a character in the recent Bill Nighy or the current Bill Nighy film who um, works in the corner house. And just anyone could go there and gay people were welcome, single women, um, suffragettes. So it was somewhere you could go and be safe and kind of trade confidences. I, mean, I think my mum did that quite a lot with her sister there, yeah. I, I think my mum's told me about being in there as well. I mean, it really is just a, a huge British institution. Yes, yeah. and I love the idea of the kind of the windows steaming up and something a bit kind of, you know, secretive going on behind that. And uh, you could have, uh, you know, you could have a proper meal and you probably meet someone famous or, you know, mm. see someone famous in there as well. What, what's there now? Do we know? No, that, so there's a plaque, I think, to the tea shop. Um, the corner house is, you, you wouldn't know it was there. So it's a real shame mm. because the corner house in particular was massive and had different floors that specialised in different kinds of cuisine as well. So it was really quite exotic for its time. Let's look at a couple of other retail options from the area. There was Simpsons and of course there was Lily White's too. Yes. Yeah, so Lily White's is still there but when it first started it was again it was embracing the idea of the outdoors. It had bizarrely an indoor um, ski slope that you could um, have a go on. So there's a a uh, great picture in my book of people wearing the kind of clothes you wouldn't expect to wear when you're skiing. And uh, one of the people in it has got a pipe clenched between his teeth. And you think, but if you just looked outside, although you're on your skis, you'd see Piccadilly Circus. So it's this idea of the open air in the 1930s and the idea of knapsacking they, they spoke of as kind of going um, for a walk. And again, I remember my mum when I was... So I grew up in East Anglia. When I needed some new hockey boots, she said, well, we'll go up to Piccadilly Circus. And I'm thinking, but there are lots of shops that are much nearer, but it was the idea of going somewhere that has that history. And Simpsons, which is now Waterstone's flagship, was aimed at the new male shopper. And it was a beautiful modernist building. And the idea was that the male shopper needed guidance in a shop as to how to go and lots of light and chrome that would lead him to where he might um, want to buy something. Quite extraordinary. Then, of course, everything changes again because it's World War II and the lights go off. The, the one thing Piccadilly Circus has absolutely been known for is the way it's illuminated. And things began to close at mm. that time. Tell us how, how that affected... Well, I suppose it made it a bit more mysterious again because, you know, you had blackout paint, uh, white around the trees and the pavements and the curbs and things like that. So it gave it an air of mystery, but people, I think, were much more looking to have a good time and to make the most of the, their time off. Mm. And some of that time off, of course, was in the in the Café de Paris. Yes. So the Café de Paris bragged that it was blitzproof because it was below pavement level. And unfortunately, a high explosion bomb came down the ventilation shaft in March 1941 and tragically killed lots of people there, including Snake Hips Johnson, who was a famous band leader. And other people were really badly injured. And it was a moment of kind of hubris and fate. So if you chose that moment to go and powder your nose or to make a phone call, you probably would have been saved. And because it was a high explosive bomb, the people who came to look after the, the victims saw lots of people looking as if they were completely unscathed, but they, they were dead, unfortunately. And there were accounts of looting. So Ballard Berkeley, who was a, an auxiliary police officer who was later in Forty Towers as the colonel, he reported seeing this looting going on and people lying there thinking that their, their pulses were being taken, but actually people were ripping off jewellery, oh. people lying there. So really quite unpleasant. Other people were quite gallant and there were nurses there who tore up lovely gowns to dress the wounded and used champagne to clean the wounds. 
And there was also someone called Boogie Barnes there who was a football player. He lost his leg. But then after that, when he was recuperating, spent a year and realised he was quite good at jingles. So he came up with Murray Mints, Murray Mints, too good to Harry Mints. Don't you remember that? <laughs> so it kind of changed his life in a quite unexpected way. I mean, the thing about all of this and the way it's often been portrayed is that it's quite sort of glamorous, you know, champagne to, to rinse the wounds and everything. We forget how terrible war actually is. Oh, it must have been just awful. And one of the accounts, because there are quite a few oral history accounts of this, you know, just the injured lying outside and because it was the Blitz, there were, it wasn't just the only attack that night and just lying on a, a stretcher and hoping you'll be taken to the hospital. And then if you are hoping it's the right hospital you're being taken to because one hospital had a queue of people going in. One person who was injured, a a religious uh, fanatic came up and said, shouted at him, I hope you're ready to meet your maker, which must have been just so dreadful if you're lying in in pain, wondering what's happened to the the girl you came with as well. And of course, at blackouts during the Second World War, and that gave a lot of opportunity, not just for romantic trysts to take place willingly in doorways, but I'm quite sure, as you say, there was a lot of criminality and and perhaps some sexual abuse going on in that darkness. Yes, I'm, I'm quite sure of that. And, you know, it wouldn't have been reported in the way it would today but there was a place called the Rainbow Corner which was a kind of hostel for GI men coming into London and it it said that it was it never closed so it threw away its key but it was a you know a mecca for sex workers who would come there and it was said that you could get anything you wanted from Soho so you could get a German Luger you could get stockings and you know things were going on in the dark that must have been awful and, and weren't reported but eventually the light returned after World War Two, and it developed even more. Yes, I mean, there were times after the war when it looked as though it was going to become a nightmare, you know, in terms of development. But there was a campaign to save it. I mean, there'd been talk of a kind of underpass and, and things being ripped up. But I think it has managed to, to retain its sense of place and some of those old buildings have been very well looked after. And what do you think about how it's sort of been central London has been redeveloped over over time since the end of the Second World War? Gosh, well, that's a a big question, isn't it, really? I suppose I quite like a bit of grime, a bit of, you know, this is where people come and have lived and parts of London are almost a bit too clean for my liking, really. But then it is an international city, isn't it? People come and, you know, it was terrible during the pandemic because reporters would go to Piccadilly Circus and say, look, this is how bad things are because I'm the only one here. So it is wonderful to have people back there and we can only have that because we've got, I think, very good transport uh, links to London and these beautiful um, buildings still Mm. to look up. And Mm. you can look at Piccadilly Circus from the ground upwards. There's always something to look at. Yeah, and of course there is that huge digital screen there. Yes, and again, thinking of the past, during the pandemic they projected the late Queen talking about, you know, things are going to get better at a point where it it really didn't look as though things were going to get better and we didn't have the vaccine. And I thought that was very moving because it made me think again of the Second World War, you know, and how everyone had to struggle when things looked really, really grim. So it's it's interesting to think of that the Queen in a a digital form doing that Mm. um, and her words being projected in that way to hopefully inspire people. And I mean, that digital screen and those lights of Piccadilly do just signal London, don't they? I mean, I remember as a child, watching American Werewolf in London (laughs) where that digital screen is very, very prominent and then coming to London for the first time and seeing it in real life and it was beyond exciting. Yes, and 
and it's always one step ahead I think of the light that you're used to somewhere else and I remember thinking it's really weird because the birds even are confused because it's so bright they're chirping because they think it's daylight and it's a kind of brightness that you can't hide from which I think it feels like a stage doesn't it really I think that's what makes it so special. Do you remember your first encounter with Piccadilly Circus? Well I do remember coming up those steps with my mum and thinking that I must rein myself in because I just wanted to open my mouth and stare at everything because it just hits you when you come up those those steps and there's too much to look at. It's kind of overwhelming. Yeah. I wonder, where would you sort of rank it in terms of other places like that in London, like Oxford Circus, for instance? Oh, well, I mean, it's top, isn't it, obviously? Because, <laughs> I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's pivotal. It's kind of liminal because it's on the edge of so many different places and I don't think anywhere else has that in London. And it used to be so that if you waited long enough at Piccadilly Circus, you'd eventually be everyone you'd ever known in the world. And I think that's kind of summing up that everyone wants to go there at some time, even if they don't particularly like it, they're kind of drawn to it. And I quite like the fact that it's a kind of mismatch. It's not too uniform. So that's, for me, what what makes it so special. How wonderful. Mitch Gillis, thank you so much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to our producer, Nora Hull, and our researcher, Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Sarah Nicholl. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from Spotify, Mixcloud, or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>